Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, it's amazing to me (laughs) that you want us to pray to you and that you hear our prayer requests and you even react to them. Thank you so much for that. It's a a tremendous opportunity. Um, But I confess we don't always take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, Maybe we try to take things into our own hands and, and solve issues in our own strength instead of praying to you and asking you for help. Father, you've put together a number of different ways that we can pray here at Keystone, whether it's corporately, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's privately, lots of opportunity. Kind of formal ministries uh, that can be an avenue uh, for or a conduit for prayer. But we also just have the, the random prayer that can happen um, out in the hallway, out in the lobby. And so we pray for that kind of a culture of prayer, that when we're talking with somebody and we see that, that prayer would be a good thing to do, to, to, to just lift a particular concern up to you, I pray that we wouldn't be inhibited in any way uh, to do that and that, uh, and that we would jump at that chance. Pray for the fruit from that to, to have a culture of prayer here that is honoring and glorifying to you. It's through Jesus we ask this. Amen. I love stories of answered prayer um, because I would guess maybe you're like me. Uh, I'm, I'm very forgetful. Uh, and one of the things I forget is that God really does answer prayers. Uh, and it, it seems so ridiculous that we would forget that. Like we have a, a good father, a powerful father, and yet that reminder of and God answers prayers and in very powerful ways at times is, I think, such a good spur motivation for us to keep praying, to keep pursuing him, to keep asking him. Uh, I, I'm guessing for many, if not all of you, uh, growing up, you had certain things that your parents either said or emphasized over and over and over and over again, that you can probably even recall as you think now. What were things in my family that maybe was a saying or just an emphasize that like I heard it again and again and again? Uh, and I would guess that thing is, as you were maybe a teenager or a middle schooler or even a young adult, you, you kind of started to roll your eyes when you heard that, nod your head and be like, I, I already know this, I've heard this like a thousand times, why do you keep saying this, mom and dad? Uh, and I would also guess that as maybe you've gotten a little bit older, you look back and you're like, man, I'm really thankful that that was emphasized over and over and over again. And that if you're a, a parent today, that maybe it's something that you say now over and over and over and over again to your kids. Because I, I think any, any parent knows the value of repetition, the value of repetition for instilling some truth or value or uh, wisdom into children, just to repeat something again and again and again and again. Well, one of the things that we should ask when we come to 1 John, maybe especially as we look at 1 John 3, 11 through 18 this morning, is why is 1 John 
so repetitive at times. If you've read through the book, or even as we go through this series, you're likely going to catch on, like, John just kind of keeps circling around again and again, coming back to the same thing. And we find that especially with this idea that we should love one another. It's something he already talked about in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, that we hit on. And now he's going to use this phrase, love one another, again, five more times in chapter 3 and 4. So we should want to know, why, why is John so repetitive? Why does it seem like he keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again? And I think there are kind of three reasons for why he does that, maybe. The, the first is this idea that John keeps circling back to things and coming at them from like a little bit of a different angle or adding something new to it as he circles back to it. I love how Brandon pictured it earlier in the series, I think in closing one morning. So John's sort of like a bumblebee that goes up to a flower, gets some, or not gets some honey, gets whatever out of the flower, goes back, uh, flies back in, comes at it from a different angle, goes back, flies back in, comes at it from a different angle. That, that's part of what it seems like John is doing. But, but I think a second reason is that John knows the value of repetition for forming us. That, that he wants his readers to leave having read his book or read his letter with certain things ringing in their ears. That, that John is like a good parent talking to his little children. Have you caught how often John says that as an address to his reader? Little children, little children, little children. And he knows the value of repetition for forming us and teaching us. And then the third reason maybe is just this, that sometimes the most basic things end up being the most difficult things to really believe and live according to. Like, we might think of just one of the most foundational Christian truths, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that's true. And yet, how often it's so hard to actually live and believe that's true. And instead, we look to our own performance to kind of find our value and worth and think, well, this is why God loves me. It's so hard sometimes to believe that basic truth. Or, or we might think of the most basic ethical commandment for Christians. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. That it's in some ways so basic and yet so difficult to actually carry it out well in practice with one another. And so John keeps repeating this command to love one another, love one another, love one another. Because I think God doesn't want us, and here's the danger, God doesn't want us to just nod our heads in agreement with the idea that we should love one another. Thinking, that's a really good idea, that sounds great. But he wants us to really put that into practice and throughout what does it mean for us to love one another practically, week in, week out, day in, day out. That, that God doesn't want love to remain in the aspect of a good idea or a theory, but to actually have us work it out in practice. I, I have a not-so-great history with playing musical instruments. It's one of the reasons I appreciate our worship team so much. Because throughout my life, there are several times I've tried to take up a musical instrument. In 10th grade, I bought a brand new set of drums and set out to play drums. And that lasted about a year until I stopped. 
in sixth grade, I decided I'm going to play guitar. I'm going to learn how to play guitar. So I bought a guitar and set out to play guitar. That, that lasted to about ninth grade, and then it stopped. And I, I couldn't play guitar at all this morning if I picked that up. And, and probably the worst example was in fourth grade, I decided I want to play the trumpet. And my parents luckily were smart enough not to buy a trumpet, but to just borrow one, because that only lasted for four weeks until I said, I'm done with this. See, playing a musical instrument always sounded like a really good idea to me. I mean, it still does to this day. Most recently, I think it'd be really cool to play the piano. Like, that'd be nice. I'd love to be able to do that. But I found over and over again that, that I wasn't then willing to actually put in the practice it takes to become good at playing a musical instrument. And, and I guess there are examples of that in all of our lives, where we have a good idea, something that sounds good, but, but then when it comes to actually kind of practicing it and carrying it out, we find we're, we're not willing to take the time, do the practice to actually learn that, do that. And, and I think that reality can be true when it comes to loving one another. That loving one another sounds like a really good idea, right? Like, I, I don't know that there's anyone who wouldn't say, yeah, we should love one another. That's a really good thing. That's a really good idea. That's, that's a really good thing for us to pursue after. And, and yet, I wonder for, for myself and maybe all of us, how often then are we also willing to say, okay, but what does it look like to put in just kind of the daily, week in, week out practice of what it means for us to love one another? And part of what I would say John is getting at this morning and, and God is getting at through John's words is this. God calls us to love in practice, not just in theory. And us being able to love in practice, practical, day-to-day ways, matters for our joy individually and as a church. And so we're going to read in John, 1 John 3. We'll be in 11 through 18 this morning, if you want to open up there. I'm going to pray for us first, and then we'll read John's words, God's words to us. Father, we come to you wanting you to shape us, form us. God, we want to be conformed more and more to Christ's image, that that when people both within the church and outside the church come in contact with us, that they would actually get a flavor, even if it's just a small flavor of what Jesus is like. And God, we, we recognize just our own inability on our own to be able to do that that we need your word, we need your Holy Spirit, we need your power to be able to make us more and more people who reflect Christ to one another and to the world. And I pray that part of what you would do this morning is to help shape us, form us in that way as we read and study your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 3, starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. The the first thing we might see as we look at this, and maybe just John as first John as a whole, is this: that love is the essential ideal of Christianity. Love is the essential ideal of Christianity. Hence, why John starts this passage, verse eleven with this. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I mean, you think about just even in our own conversations, anytime we say we should, it's then followed by some ideal or practice that we think we should pursue after this. That I might say, we should go fishing. Uh, We should exercise. We should eat more Chick-fil-A. We should exercise so we can feel okay about eating more Chick-fil-A. We, we should is followed by this is some action we should pursue after, some ideal we should chase after. And we find the ultimate action Christians are called to, the ultimate ideal is love for one another. That it's not limited just to our love for one another as Christians. It expands out into the world, but it starts with love for one another. This is why Jesus told his disciples the night before he was crucified, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. It's why Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And it's why John is going to say five times in chapters 3 and 4, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another, that it rings in our ears. This is one of the main things we're called to as Christians. Or to put in the language of last week's message, it's one of the main things that we've been set free for. Because we could look at Paul talking in Galatians 5.13, where he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I think John gives us two reasons in these first verses, verses 11 through 14, might see, why love is this essential ideal or essential pursuit for the church. The, the first is this, that love is the essential mark or is an essential mark of the church. In verses uh, tw- 11 through 13, John compares Christians here with the world at large. And, and he says the world that does not know Christ is often marked by hate, often marked by hate. And he gives the example of Cain and Abel, Cain hating his brother, murdering his brother. And John says that that's the mark of the world often is hate, especially a hate for God and his goodness and his people, right? Maybe not an overt hate, maybe just kind of a low level, but marked by hate. But what should mark us, John says, those who claim to be God's people is the exact opposite, a love for one another, a love for one another, which is exactly why Jesus says in John 13, 35 also, 
they, the world, everyone, will know you are my disciples based on your love for one another, based on how we love one another. It's one of the marks that sets Christians apart. It's the scent people should smell when they get around Christians. It's the warmth people should feel when they come in contact with Christians. Like, love for Christians, I think, should be like what heat is to a fire. You, you expect heat to be coming off a fire. When I go near a fire, I expect I'm going to feel heat coming off this fire. And if I get near a fire and there's no heat coming off of it, I might naturally say, what's wrong here? What's going on here? Jesus says the, the world, when it looks in at the church, should expect to find us loving one another. A and when that's not present, the world has every right to say, well, what, what's wrong here? What's going on here? I thought this was what was supposed to mark Jesus' disciples, a love for one another. I, I think we, we often talk, myself included, about how full our world is of hate and anger. Right? Like you, you probably heard that, said that, heard someone else say that in the past couple years. Man, our world's so full of hate and anger. And, and I think sometimes we say that almost like we're surprised by it. Like, where did this hate come from? Where did this anger come from? What's going on in our world? And yet, John tells us in these verses, don't, don't be surprised when the world hates. Don't be surprised when the world's angry, when that's what marks the world. Like, it's been that way throughout all history. And the more the world seems to be driven maybe by hate and anger, the more we as Christians actually have an opportunity to display a different and better way of life. Love for one another. Like, I, the, I think about the colder it gets outside, the more you have the opportunity to feel the warmth coming off a fire. The, the darker, we might say, or the more that our world gets angry and hates, is the more that we might have an opportunity to put out a different type of life. Love for one another. Like, let's not, as a church, just lament the type of hate or darkness we might see in the world, but to actually see it as an opportunity for us to display a better way, a way of loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another well. L love should be the essential mark of the church because here's the second thing I would say. Love is the es an essential evidence of a changed life. John tells us in verse 14, if we, if we would go back to there, that in some ways love is the vital sign of new life in us, of God having changed our life. We, we often think of life coming first and then death follows life because that's what happens physically. But in spiritual reality, it's the exact opposite. Death comes first, John would say in the Bible says. We're born into sin, born dead, born without a love for God. And then we put our faith in Christ, God saves us, and all of a sudden we've got new life in Christ. And a sign of that life, an evidence of that life in us, is how we love one another. 
it, it could almost be compared to like taking your pulse. I would guess at some point in your life, you had to take your pulse or, or maybe someone else's, maybe in like a seventh grade health class, you had to feel your wrist or feel your throat and kind of count off, okay, how many beats is my heart beating per, per minute? And, and when you feel for that pulse, you're feeling for a vital sign. And a pulse coming through signals you're alive and, and hopefully healthy. That pulse is not the source of your life, but it is the vital sign that, that you have life. And John's getting at, that's similar to what love is among Christians. It, it's, not, it's not what saves us. It's not what changes us. God does that. But then love for one another is like the pulse coming through that says we have a new life in Christ, a better life in Christ, a life marked by love for God and love for one another. And I think about it when, when I say that. What if this is just more and more what marked the church when we gathered together? Like, what if this is what we observed and felt as we gathered on a Sunday morning or any other time. Like, like not just a routine we do or an event we attend, but like a different way of life. Like a shelter from the storm that we experience throughout the week. Like a outpost, a joyful outpost from which we display to everyone a better way of life and that we would leave gathering together feeling just a little bit more alive because of how we love one another when we're around each other. Like I, I think about that. I'm like, man, I, I want that to mark the church. I want that to mark me. I want Jesus to do that in us. That sounds great while then immediately recognizing just how difficult that can actually be for all of us, myself included. Because love is, maybe you want to add the word one there, love is one of the most challenging parts of Christianity. Love is one of the most challenging parts of Christianity, if not the most challenging part to actually live out. As I read this passage this week, I found myself simply wanting to brush over John's warning about being like Cain and his words about like how if you hate someone, you're a murderer. Like, did, you, did you catch that as we read through? I read through that and I was just like, I just kind of want to brush over this. Like I just want to say, this is classic John, uh, kind of too black and white, over-exaggerating to make an effect. Like he, he's just talking in language that's just, just exaggerating. I can just brush craft this. And, and then I'm reminded, well, John's words are God's words. Like where the Bible speaks, we'd say God speaks. And I think often when we find ourselves coming across words in the Bible that we just kind of want to brush over, it's actually a sign that maybe we should slow down and think them over a little bit more. For, for us to stop and ask, how could I be just like Cain? even if I never murdered my brother or ever thought about murdering my brother. Because John's warning me, don't be like Cain. A and what's the connection here between hate and murder? Like, why is John driving those two together as if there's no difference between them? A and here's what I kept coming back to as I was thinking about those questions. Self-centeredness. 
a life focused on me at the expense of other people. Because isn't that exactly what Cain did when he killed Abel? Cain, in essence, you could say, sacrificed Abel for his own sake. Abel was righteous, had God's favor. Cain wasn't. Cain thought, it'd be better for me if Abel wasn't around. I'll get rid of him. And what do hate and murder have in common in some ways? Wanting to get rid of someone else or see harm come to someone else for my own sake. Right? Like murder is the ultimate form of self-centeredness. Getting rid of someone because I don't want them around. And as one person says, hate is just an embryonic form of that. Not wanting someone because they're getting in the way of what I want or taking what I want. See, I think it's all too easy to skirt John's warning here and go past it. When, when if we just sit with it a little bit longer, we might see we're all prone to put ourselves ahead of others. That's what Cain did. That's what murder does. That's what hate does. And John says that's an exact opposite of love in verses 16 and 18. Love is sacrificing for the sake of someone else. And hate is sacrificing them for my own sake. And I'm confronted with the reality when I, when I think about that, when I see those words, of how easy it feels for me to put myself ahead of others and expect others to serve me. That that feels so much easier many times than sacrificing for the sake of other people. I mean, this is part of what it means to be a sinner. This is part of the battle that we're called to wage as Christians day after day after day. Like we, we wake up, I think, every morning with this battle raging in our hearts. Like, am I going to serve others and sacrifice for others today? Or am I going to expect them to serve me and sacrifice for me? Like, like am I going to get angry and upset and impatient and frustrated when other people, which they will, infringe on my agenda, my plans, my wants? Or will I gladly sacrifice my agenda, my wants, my plans, my desires today for the sake of other people? Another way to put that is, will I live like I'm king? and everything should go my way? Or will I live like Jesus is king and follow him in loving other people? Like that, that battle just rages, I think, every day for us as Christians. And if we feel that battle, it's probably a good thing. Like if love is challenging, that's probably a good sign. Love is not easy in this life. One day in heaven, we're talk- it's gonna be easy. But in this life, it is anything but easy. And if love always feels easy and never feels like a challenge, then then we might need to stop and ask ourselves, am I really practicing love for one another or has it just become a good idea in my mind? I mean, I, I think about it. If I set out to start a new workout program tomorrow, where I decide I'm going to do a weightlifting thing for five days a week for the next month. And over that month, I never once feel sore. I never once struggled to get up the motivation to wake up and actually work out in the morning. Then I should probably stop and ask myself, am I really working out? Or am I just lifting a five-pound dumbbell ten times and calling that a workout? Right? Am I really working out or is this just kind of a good idea that I've set out and I'm calling a workout something that it actually 
isn't. Like, love won't be easy in this life, and, and, and we shouldn't be surprised when it is a challenge because it's a battle to put others ahead of ourselves over and over and over and over again. We, we might put it this way, that second point there, that loving as a Christian is like learning a new language. Loving as a Christian is like learning a new language in many ways. We're not born as people who naturally love one another and sacrifice for one another. We're born as people who naturally expect others to sacrifice for us and and, and put me first ahead of everyone else. And and yet the Bible talks about, and John in this passage talks about, okay, when we are saved, put our faith in Christ, then a radical change takes place. We pass from death to life. We pass from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We move from being citizens of this world to citizens of heaven. Like the Bible talks about, there's this incredible change that takes place when we're saved. That's an objective reality that takes takes place in the moment we trust in Christ. But while that happens in a single moment, that's a reality that takes a lifetime to work out subjectively. It's a reality that takes a lifetime to actually work out and practice. That's part of what we talk about when we talk about sanctification, working out our salvation. We could think of it in this way almost. If this week or next week you decided, I'm going to move my family to Pakistan to be missionaries in Pakistan, the moment you get there, that's a change, an objective change. You now live in Pakistan. And yet in many ways, it would take you or I a lifetime to actually work out what it means to live in Pakistan now, to learn the culture to learn the food, to learn the people, to learn the language is going to be hard work that takes a lifetime to, in many ways, work out into your life. And the same thing is true of our salvation in Christ. In a moment, it happens when God saves us, and yet it takes the rest of our lives to work it out. That's that's part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, following after him working out our salvation to every area of our lives. And that includes loving one another, that we're seeking to work that out into practical ways into our lives. Because love, we could say, is the most practical outworking of the gospel. That might be an over-exaggeration, but test me on that. Love is the most practical outworking of the gospel. It seems like that's what John is getting at in verses 16 and 18. That if we want to live a life shaped by the gospel, right? Like we talk about at Keystone, being gospel-centered people, living lives in line with the gospel. If we want to do that, one of the best ways for us to do that is to seek to love one another well. Because first of all, John shows in verse 16, we have the perfect pattern of love. We have the perfect pattern of love in Jesus. We have all sorts of debates in our days about who's the goat. You know what I mean by that phrase? Who's, who's the greatest of all time, right, in any area? We, we debate it in all sorts of areas. We, we might debate it in tennis, right? Who's the greatest of all time? Is it Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, or Roger Federer, right? I prefer Andy Roddick. But who, who's the greatest, right? In, in Jeopardy, is it Ken Jennings or James Holzhauer or Brad Rutter? Definitely not Brad Rutter. Who who is it in 
uh, basketball? Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? Who is it in football? Is it Tom Brady or is it Nick Foles? Right? Who, who's the greatest of all time? I prefer Nick Foles in that one. Who's the greatest of all time? Every, so many areas we talk about this. John's telling us when it comes to love, there's simply no debate. There's simply no debate. Jesus is the greatest of all time when it comes to love. He is the pinnacle, the perfection of love. And if we want to know what the most loving thing anyone has ever done is, we look at him laying down his life to sacrifice for us. Earlier in John, we talked about the idea, if we want to know what love is, we need to look to Jesus. We want to define love, we need to look to Jesus. And here John gets more specific and says, if we want to know what love is, we need to look to Jesus' death on the cross, to him sacrificing himself for us. Brett McCracken says this, self-effacing and others-serving, sacrificial. This is the central idea of Christian love. This is the uncomfortable meaning of love. It doesn't lead to easier lives. It leads to sacrifice. Like, this is at the center of the gospel we believe. A God who gladly sacrifices himself for the people he made who have rejected him. Just think about that again for me, with me for a moment. We know this, but think about the wonder of this. That at the very center of our way of thinking about life, of our religion, of our, of our gospel, is not a God who demands that we make sacrifices to appease him. Do this so that I'll be pleased with you. That's not our God. But at the very center is a God who says, I will gladly sacrifice myself for you so that you can find life and hope and joy and peace in me. I mean, that is part of what makes the gospel beautiful and good and better news than what any other religion or way of life in this world has. And that's the pattern Jesus gives us then to follow after, to sacrifice for one another. But I immediately think when I say that, like we need more than just a pattern to love. We need more than just a pattern to be able to follow after. I was watching Wimbledon tennis over the past couple weeks. And maybe you were as well. And if you watch Wimbledon tennis, you get a pattern of what it means to be good at tennis. Like really good at tennis. Hit every serve 120 miles per hour right down the line into the corner of the other person's box every single time. Then anticipate where they're going to hit it back to and be there quicker than they can hit the ball. Have a really powerful forehand and a good backhand and hit the ball as hard as you possibly can or to the place where your opponent is least likely to get it and do it over and over and over and over again. Like I saw the pattern. That's what it means to be good at tennis. And yet if someone then told me, okay, Kyle, go out and do that, like I'd be hopeless because I can't hit a serve faster than probably 50 miles an hour. And I have a terrible backhand and really not a good forehand either. Like, I need more than a pattern. And the same thing is true when it comes to love. We need more than just a pattern that says do this. We need a power that enables us to do it. And part of the beauty that we have in the gospel is we not only find the pattern for what we're called to, but the power for what we're called to do. We have the present power for love. 
to which we might ask, well, how does the gospel give us the power to love and sacrifice for one another? And we might just look back at verse 16 again. We're told, Jesus sat, lay down his life for us. Jesus sacrificed what was most valuable, most precious, his very life for us. And we could say, if he did that for us, then surely he's willing to do anything else to care for us today, tomorrow, and the next day. And we might look at, okay, what did Jesus accomplish in that? He met my greatest need and your greatest need, our need for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we might say, if, if God did that 2,000 years ago, then surely he is more than able to meet all of our needs today, tomorrow, and the next day. And when we believe that, then we're free to make sacrifices for other people out of love. Like we're free to give up things because we can say, I know my God will take care of me and I trust him, so I'm able to sacrifice for the sake of someone else. We don't have to seek to maintain whatever level of comfort or leisure time or pleasure, whatever else it is, that that we don't want to sacrifice. But rather we can give things up saying, God loves me. I know he'll take care of me because I've seen how he did that in giving up his son to die for me. And do you notice what we're doing when we think that way? We're preaching the gospel over and over and over again to ourselves. God loves me and gave up his son for me so that then we can live in line with the gospel. God will continue to take care of me. Therefore, I can make sacrifices to love other people. Right? But, but we might also then add, go a step farther and think, why did Jesus lay down his life for us? Why did he sacrifice for us? Out of love for us? Yes. Out of a desire to glorify the Father? Yes. We're told that in John 15. But also for the sake of joy. This is the incredible thing, I think, about Hebrews 12 too, where we're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And the author tells us we should follow in his footsteps looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Like Jesus shows us the path of sacrificial love is a pathway that ends in joy that it may not feel joyful moment by moment as we're called to make sacrifices for one another, but it's a pathway to greater joy, just as it was for him. And that gives us the power then, I would say, in the moments where we have to lay down something for someone else. We have to give up our time. We have to give up our money. We have to give up something else. And it feels like I'm giving up something that's, that's making me happy. That gives us the power to say, but sacrifice is ultimately following Christ, leading to a better, longer, more fuller joy than whatever I have in this thing that I'm giving up. I recently kind of got hooked on the show Alone. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's a reality show that I think is on History Channel. And here's the premise of the show. It's a reality show, so it's probably not all true. Uh, But the premise is they take 10 people and they send them out into some remote corner of the earth. Uh, I think the, the current season is they're like somewhere up in a lake in northern Canada. No one else is around. 
And then they take these 10 people, separate them, and put them on different corners of wherever this place is. So they have no contact with each other. And then it's just a contest to see like, who can last the longest, who can survive out there the longest without tapping out or without having to be pulled out because of their health. And as you watch, like, you see these people making incredible sacrifices. Like they give up time with their family to be able to go out and just live all alone. They give up warmth and, and a nice bed to just like sleep in a wooden shelter that they have to build. They give up a, a constant source, a reliable source of food, and they essentially slowly starve out there. They, they give up security as they're surrounded by grizzly bears and other things. And, and you might watch this show and you're like, why would anyone ever do this? This is crazy. Like, why would anyone ever put themselves through this? Because if you can last the longest in that show and remain to the end, you win $500,000. See, the contestants know we're making sacrifices, but we're doing it because we believe there's something better at the end of these sacrifices. And I think that's part of what God calls us to do in sacrificially loving one another. To sacrifice day by day, to love one another as Christ has loved us, but then reminding us this is also for the sake of our joy. We could just even think about it in this way. We might ask, who's the most joyful person who ever lived? I'd be willing to argue it was Jesus. We'd say, who's the most sacrificial person who ever lived? Jesus. And so with that in mind, we could just have this takeaway this morning, that we should pursue joy by sacrificing for others. I, I love how John ends this passage in verses 17 and 18. It tells us we ought to be doing, willing to do the exact same thing Jesus did, lay down our lives for one another. But then he doesn't leave it hanging 10,000 feet in the air where probably none of us will ever be able to reach. Like probably none of us will ever have to die for someone else. Maybe, but probably not. John doesn't leave it hanging there, but he brings it down to ground level to our day-to-day -day lives. And he says, here's what it looks like. If you see someone in need and you can sacrifice to help meet that need, then do that out of love for them and obedience to Christ. That, that what day-to-day -day sacrificial love looks like is simply giving away money to those who we know have need, whether spiritual or physical need, to be able to meet that need. Up to, because you're praying for someone else, some need they have, and probably no one else will ever know that you actually prayed for that person and spent time in prayer for them. To, to give up time to spend with someone else, talking to them, listening to them, serving them. To give up your comfort, whether on a Sunday morning or throughout the week, to welcome other people and get to know them. To give up time and energy to love and serve your family, whether your immediate family or your church family. To give up the desire to be liked, to tell someone else about Christ and what he's done. Like, where do other people have needs? And how can we act and sacrifice to meet those needs? That's the question God wants us, I think, asking over and over again to take love from a good idea and to put it into daily practice. And then the good news with that is there are no small acts of sacrificial love. Like, there are no small acts. God sees it all, everything we do to love one another in obedience to him whether it's changing a child's diaper, texting a friend, offering to pray for a coworker, 
or giving money away to missions or anything else, there are no small acts of sacrificial love when they're done in obedience to God and for one another. And so let's pursue joy by seeking to sacrifice for those around us. Father, we praise you because you've loved us first. The only reason we can love and sacrifice for one another is because you did that for us by sending your son to die for us. Like I'll never understand why you did that for me, why you gave up Jesus to save us at a time when we wanted nothing to do with us. What an incredible sacrifice. And I pray that you'd help us to then be people who are marked by that sacrifice, people who love one another well. Help us do that, we pray. pray this in Jesus' name.